south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 163, covering the weeks of March 25th through April 5th, 2019. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute, like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can also support the Abbeville Institute by going to abbevilleinstitute.org. Just give us an email address there. We'll give you a free ebook. You'll get our email uh, list on our email list, Daily Dose of Dixie, Monday through Friday, and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. You can also support the Institute there by going to abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see a tab that says support. Click on that. You'll have uh, donor levels or donor options. If you click on that, you can donate to the Institute uh, annually, monthly, or give a one-time donation. It's all tax-deductible to the full extent of law, so please consider giving us a donation. We do appreciate it, and it helps keep the podcast going, the website up, all of our conferences. All the things we do are part of that process by which you help us along with your financial support. Also remember that we have our summer school coming up, July. Let's see, it's July. Let me try to think of the dates here. July, July 21st through 26, 2019. It will be in Seabrook Island, South Carolina. Information is available on our website, so make sure you go out and check that out. Again, July 21st through 26th. We do have scholarships for uh, graduate students, undergraduate students, and advanced high school students. We want to see as many students there as possible. The topic is the New South and Reconstruction, focusing more on the New South and Southern identity in the New South. So it's going to be a great time. Again, information is available on our website. Make sure you contact Dr. Livingston about that, uh, and his phone number and email address are there. So that's how you would sign up for the summer school. And also we have on the uh, on the website, abbevilleinstitute.org, where it says uh, support. You have the button that says shop. Click on that. It will take you out where you can get your Abbeville Institute apparel, that would be embroidered apparel, hats, shirts, uh, polo shirts, great stuff. Uh, so go out there and get your Abbeville Institute apparel. Okay. All of that said, last week I was off. Uh, so this is why this particular uh, episode 163 will cover two weeks of material. And I'm going to highlight a few things that we talked about. There was, a, there was a theme over these two weeks. And it's generally the same thing we do, uh, it seems like, uh, frequently because, of course, the uh, attacks on the Southern tradition in the South itself are unrelenting. And I'm not certain it's ever going to get any better, uh, at least not for a while. Um, you know, we've seen, uh, for example, the, the city of Dallas vote to take down a long-standing Confederate memorial there uh, in a cemetery, in fact. I mean, this is not like it's in a, a place where um, you could say, well, it's in a public square, and, but it's in a cemetery. Um, so... But it's coming down, the uh, the Dallas War Memorial. Uh, so, again, this is going to be part and parcel. This is what we're facing uh, across the South. But And that's because the Southern tradition has been marginalized, minimalized, or uh, minimized, excuse me, uh, and uh, relegated to the dustbin of, of American history, the insignificant other, or it's just all the bad things. Look, the South is always the bad part of American history, and the North is always a good part. And, of course, we have accepted the narrative that the South uh, was the instigator in the war, that Southerners were traitors, that they deserved to be defeated and then abused during Reconstruction. This is what we've, this is what we've decided collectively as a people. And 
the problem with that, of course, is that none of that's true. Um, and the, the challenge that we face in the South and with the Southern tradition, with the Abbeville Institute, is how to explain the Southern tradition, how to explain what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition that people can use. That's very important. What can we use in the Southern tradition? What's valuable in the Southern tradition? And so I want to begin uh, this particular podcast with a piece that I wrote for a Mises talk that I gave uh, in March, uh, just before uh, the last week of March. I think it was on uh, March 20, 22nd. I gave this talk in Auburn, Alabama, and it's the challenge of the Southern tradition. And I went through the, in this particular piece um, some of the some of the highlights of, of what I think are and I was asked to talk about the agrarians and so I did and I talked more about the book Who Owns America than uh, I'll take my stand because in my opinion Who Owns America is, is a much more interesting book it's much it's much more prescriptive rather than philosophical and even though the philosophical part is is great um, they were well aware by 1936 that the 12 Southerners who wrote I'll take my stand. They, they were well aware of the crit critiques that came out of that book, the criticisms, and primarily it was that the men who wrote it were not farmers, and they were asking people to be farmers. And what do they know about farming? They never picked up a plow. These people are, are academics. And so they wrote this book and expanded it, and it was a way of looking at regionalism, a way of looking at identity, um, and it was a prescription for how people could wrestle with the modern age. And, of course, by the modern age, uh, we're talking about industrialization. And we're looking at the modern age. I mean, look, one of the things I bring up in the book is that Southerners actually, or in this in this piece, is that Southerners actually like this stuff. I mean, you go around, how many McDonald's are there in the South? Southerners have embraced uh, this, this modernity that the agrarians were so critical of because they realized that with modernity, uh, you have tradition uh, set aside. This is something that people like Dabney and others, and this is this is an issue I talk about in the piece, were realizing in the 1860s and 70s that with Reconstruction, essentially, it wasn't just about uh, putting back together the Union, and it really wasn't even just about uh, the the role of freedmen in society. It was bigger than that, um, and there were pointing people like Dabney were pointing that out. You're going to open this Pandora's box, and you can never close it because it's not just going to be well, uh, what do we do with former slaves? You're going to start seeing other elements of tradition under attack as well. And um, that's essentially what's happened uh, in, in modern American society. Uh, Dabney was right on. Uh, he realized that uh, this was only the beginning uh, in the 1860s. And we've gone through now a couple of different phases of Reconstruction, about three different phases of Reconstruction. And this modern... Uh, uh, this modern attack on Southern symbols and the Southern tradition and the acceptance of the terms like traitor and treason, that's all part of it. Uh, those terms were being thrown around also in the 1860s, but nobody bought it because they understood that eh, you can't really say that. Uh, the majority of American society, North and South, of course, def definitely in the South, but even the North realized that using that term traitor and treason just didn't fit. Uh, Southerners were not traitors, because they, uh, because they exercised, in their mind, a constitutional right to secede from the Union. That didn't make them traitors. It didn't make them bad people. It didn't make them enemies of America. It made them distinctively American. And enough Northerners recognized that to forestall any type of retribution against the South. 
Uh, and now the, the other part, I mean, it's this is you know some when you look at different groups in the South and the Reconstruction New South period, you, of course, uh, former slaves are a voting block. So this is exactly why many of the uh, many many uh, Northerners wanted slaves, former slaves, to be able to vote because they're going to vote Republican. But what about women? Well, we aren't so certain about women. How are they going to vote? I mean, Southern women aren't necessarily going to vote for Republicans, so uh, that's not going to influence elections. What about American Indians? Well, they're not going to vote Republican because the Republican Party is abusing them like crazy out in the West. So they're not going to get the vote. They don't vote. That was the issue. So we can go ahead and abuse those groups or not allow women in the process, even though that was that was on the horizon. You know, Dabney pointed this out. And there were people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton who were interested in, uh, you know, suffrage and were very disappointed that uh, the 15th Amendment did not include women. And so it's going to take uh, another um, period of time, another almost 60 years before women are able to vote uh, through an amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution. Now, some states had already allowed it, but still almost half the states had not by the time the 19th Amendment was ratified. So we have this transformative period of Reconstruction, but yet we still have this tradition out there. And what is it? And how do we articulate that tradition? It's a challenge. It's what Richard Weaver said is a challenge. What is the challenge of the Southern tradition? And the challenge of the Southern tradition is being, being able to articulate what that tradition is, first and foremost, and then being able to explain why it's important. When you look at modern American society, and we're all we're crushed by technology, or we're crushed by modernization, and we're, we're wrestling with these things, well, what does the Southern tradition offer? Uh, and, and I brought up in the, in the piece, uh, Senator Stennis of Mississippi said, you know, we didn't have a lot of money back in the, uh, in, when I was growing up, but we had, we had things that were important. We had good friends and good family and community, and we had a faith-based culture. Uh, these are things that are important. And the Southern tradition has always had those things first and foremost at the center. Whether Whatever your political leanings are, you could find uh, for much of the 20th century, whether they were a Southern liberal like C. Van Woodward or a Southern conservative like John Stennis, you could find, or, or Strom Thurmond, or take your pick, you know, Sam Irvin. There was still a commonality there. There was still those things, community, faith, friends, and a resistance to modernity, and a Southern way of doing things. In fact, I brought up a, a quote from uh, a, a um, uh, from the uh, the uh, one of these major series of uh, of literary works. It was a collection of um, this Library of Southern Literature is the title of it. And one of the authors, one of the editors of that, said, "Look, you know, the challenge is what we need to do is we need to be more Southern. We don't need to be like the North. We need to be more consciously Southern and think about what that actually is. That's the identity part. It's the identity of who we are. As Mel Bradford said, remembering who we are. You get swept up in modernity. You get swept up in technology. You get swept up in the fact that everything has to be Midwestern or there's this American culture. You see it all the time. We need to create an Americanism. This is back in vogue. Nationalism. Uh, on the left and the right, the neoconservatives tend to push a nationalism that's uh, supposedly conservative, but not really. It's more Wilsonian imperialism. And then, and of course, Yankee cultural imperialism. And then you have the leftists who are doing the exact same things, but from a different perspective. Jill Lepore and people like that, um, who are writing uh, sweeping histories that advocate an Americanism. Well, where does regionalism fit in there? 
Um, is it important? And, and I brought up in, in this piece how they were, they were talking about, you know, we, regionalism still exists. We still have a New, New England. We still have a South. We still have a West. We still have a Midwest. All that stuff still exists. And so would it not be better to have a type of regional government? Would decentralization not be better for Americans wrestling with these cultural and social, social issues? One of the major problems we have in America is that we always try to have a top-down forced culture. Whether it's from the right or the left, this is what right now the left is dominating this this narrative. But for a long time, you could say, well, it was a kind of a conservative American culture, and the left would bristle at that. Well, what's what would happen if you had regionalism is that would never be the case. You would have regional areas that could have that would have cultural differences. We would have maybe a union, as it says, and as it was designed, a union that would have defensive and commercial purposes only. Uh, if the United States is attacked, well, then you have everyone rallying around the flag and saying, we're going to defend the United States. But those cultural differences would be uh, would be supported by regionalism. Uh, and, of course, uh, some of the agrarians talked about things like farms, a livelihood farm, but they even recognized that everybody has to be a farmer, but you have to respect farming. You have to respect agri- agriculture. You have to respect the small family farm. You can't have major industrial farming because that's going to create problems as well. It's still industrialization. You lose a way of life when you do these things. And part of the problem with America is that you have this bristless cultural war. You have people that um, now, I think it's about half of Americans, don't even aren't even religious anymore at all. But generally the South tends to be more religious than anywhere else. Uh, you have more and more people moving into urban areas, so small towns are disappearing. The rural lifestyle is disappearing. And this is all because of industrialization and commercialization. This is all Hamiltonian. Uh, this is the Hamiltonian dream. This is why John Taylor of Caroline and Thomas Jefferson and others warned against it. So the challenge of the Southern tradition is trying to explain to people, well, what can the Southern, what can the Southern critique of modernity offer moving forward? What do these Confederate statues mean in relation to the Southern critique of modernity? What do they mean about heroism and valor? What do they mean about republicanism with the lowercase r and tradition and small government? What does that actually mean? You aren't free if you can't leave. What does culture have to do with a people? These are important questions and questions that we try to answer, or at least ask, at the Abbeville Institute. And so the piece that I wrote was intended to be that, to begin a discussion about identity, um, how do we sell the Southern tradition moving forward, how do we articulate a Southern tradition, how do we become more Southern and not like good Northerners. We don't need to look at things from a Northern perspective, but from a Southern perspective, and Southerners recognize they're different. They reckon people that come into the South recognize the South is different. It's not New England. It's not the Midwest. It's not the West. It's not California. It's not New York. There are differences here. And you can, you can have political disputes. And this is one thing we brought up several times, you know, with people like Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was purely Southern. We can have political disputes with Jimmy Carter, but Jimmy Carter is a Southerner. And that's what we need to recognize uh, we've lost that in some ways because Southerners have accepted the Northern critique of the South. And so they no longer think like Southerners. This is happening in the 19th century. It's happening in the early 20th century. And people are saying, look, you need to resist that. Think of the world as more Southern. Think of Robert E. Lee as a symbol of the South. 
And one of the pieces we ran a, a couple of weeks ago was from a northerner, New Yorker, who wrote a glowing essay on Robert E. Lee because Robert E. Lee was put into a Hall of Fame of great Americans in New York. Now, can you imagine that happening today? Clearly not, because Robert E. Lee is nothing but a traitor. Being torn down, his statues are being torn down. His image, his reputation being torn down by the left. But Americans universally, left and right, admired Robert E. Lee. And they admired Lee because he's worthy of admiration. And I know there's these, you know, the, the, the Dorothy Pryor book that's out there, you know, reading the man, which makes a claim that Lee was all these horrible things with one source. I mean, this is the funniest thing about it. Some of the claims that are put out there, and I've, and I've addressed this in, uh, in several times when, talk, when you talk about Lee, but some of the most nasty claims made about Lee are from one source, clearly. One source means that it's 100% accurate. I mean, I read that on Wikipedia, right? This is what you have. Dorothy, Dorothy uh, Pryor, her book, uh, I'm sorry, Elizabeth uh, Pryor, not Dorothy, Elizabeth Pryor's book is relying on one source to... Uh, to criticize Robert E. Lee when it talks about, you know, Lee was in favor of the Klan and all these other kind of things. One source from a student who's not very reliable at all. But that's what we have now. This is where we are with Robert E. Lee. And it's unfortunate because Lee is one of the greatest Americans in American history. You can say, well, he was wrong for siding with the South. He should have stayed with the North. I mean, if this is your perspective, but you cannot, you cannot undermine his character and who Robert E. Lee was as a man. And this is why Northerners embrace Robert E. Lee as one of their own. It's the same thing as embracing George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. Now, of course, even those individuals are under attack. Hofstra University wants to remove a statue of Thomas Jefferson. This is just lunacy. This is where we are in America. It's absolute lunacy. These people are crazy. They have been, uh, they have been uh, just run over with French revolutionary ideas. It's not American, these ideas that they're running around with, this uh, iconoclasm classism and um, this, uh, this uh, extreme distaste for anything traditional. That's French, revolution, Fre French revolutionary style nonsense. So this piece on Lee that we, that we had, Lee, Virginia, and the Union by Fred Cox. Again, this, is, this was published uh, in the early 20th century, 1901. In the Swanee Review. Um, as the piece concludes, he belongs, therefore, not to Virginia and the South alone. He belongs to the whole United States, which, with al almost a unanimity of thinking, feeling men in every state, now acknowledges his full round greatness and happily accords him generous rank in this New York Hall of Fame and in the admiration of the whole country and of the world. Now, can you imagine somebody in 2019 writing that? No, but that's because, as we have a piece on Friday, we have an American Taliban. As the more radical Islamist regimes took over in the Middle East because of dislocation and other things, I mean, the American imperialism was certainly part of this, you started seeing the Taliban move into areas, and they were tearing down statues and historical artifacts, ruining these things. Why? Because they could and because they were against their own belief systems. They did not respect history. And these people that are tearing this stuff down 
contextualizing it, whatever they're trying to do. They don't respect history. They don't, they're trying to rewrite. They're revisionists. They're rewriting everything because it fits their political narrative. And as Boyd Cathy points out uh, on, in the leftist long march, the Confederate statues are just, that's just a speed bump. What they really want to do is destroy American tradition. What they really want to do is destroy traditional society. They want to destroy Christianity. They want to destroy everything that gets in their way of their vision of a progressive egalitarian utopia. That doesn't involve Christianity. That doesn't involve Southern symbols or Southern history. Doesn't involve American traditional symbols like George Washington or Thomas Jefferson because they're evil slave owners. They're the founding racists, as the progressives like to call them. It doesn't involve any of that. It involves American history from 1975 to the present. That's what it involves. So this, this long march, as Boyd calls it, is very important to understand. It's, it's not just, we're going to tear down a few Confederate statues and be satisfied. We're going to tear down all the Confederate statues, then George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison and James Monroe. In fact, we just need to scrap that thing called the Constitution because it had slaveholders writing it. We need to scrap that declaration because it had slave a slave owner primarily wrote that. We need to get rid of all that stuff and have some type of new egalitarian society. What we are seeing is a soft French Revolution. It's not so violent or abrupt. It's a gradual French Revolution. This is what Dabney was pointing out, why I pointed that out in the piece I wrote entitled The Challenge of the Southern Tradition. We are undergoing a soft French Revolution in America. Now, part of that is because we have a distorted image of history. Um, when Fred Cox of New York can write these glowing things about Robert E. Lee, of course, he was taught these over time, but now that's not what you get. And uh, a little another little piece I wrote uh, this past week on, on the first Congress, um, the, the history is okay, but it's the subtle digs at the South that you get out of it that uh, where you would get an impression that the South are somehow, uh, Southerners are somehow backwards and the insignificant others. Uh, for example, every Norther in this particular book, it's entitled The First Congress, uh, how James Madison, George Washington, a group of extraordinary men invented the government. So he's, uh, Fergus Bordowich is very praiseworthy of Madison and Washington. He doesn't really understand Madison very well, but um, every Southerner, has got some type of derogatory term. They're, they're hot-tempered, temperamental, stony-faced, haranguing, while Northerners are brilliant, provocative, handsome, elegant, and tireless. Just think about how that, that, is, that, that portrayal of people in different sections, uh, Bordowich is clearly pro-Northern. I mean, he, he is critical of every Southerner for being, uh, I mean, he actually said, you know, James Jackson, one of his favorite things was slavery. His favorite thing. Think about that. Uh, would you have said this about Fisher Ames? Who's, uh, I mean, uh, now he wasn't a slaveholder, but uh, Fisher Ames, who's, uh, whose favorite thing was uh, Northern sectionalism. You wouldn't say these things, but yet you can get away with it with Southerners. And of course, because this is the way people are taught, the Southerners are these things, horrible things. This is when you get into the issue of reparations. And Paul Yarbrough published a piece on, on uh, 
Wednesday, Reparations, Let's Do It, where he gets into this idea, okay, if you want to have reparations, all right, fine, let's, let's consider that, but then consider how broad this needs to be. What about the people that were involved in the slave trade in Africa or in the North? Should they have to pay reparations? How do we determine who's going to get the money? How much African blood do you have to have? And how far back does that blood have to go uh, to get the money? How much money are you actually going to give? Uh, and when you look at the idea of reparations, it's often, I mean, Phil Lee makes a great point about this with Reconstruction. Southerners have already paid that. It was, it was pensions and other things. They've already paid reparations. They've already paid tremendous amounts of money and capital to the general government over time um, at, 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 in a way, in a, at a pace that's far outpaces what they're able to do at times. But one of the major problems we have is that people are not taught this. They're not taught well. They're taught platitudes and slogans. And because they're taught platitudes and slogans, they don't have a, a full understanding of American history or the complexities of American history. It's just It just doesn't exist. Uh, which is why Alphonse Louis Vin, who is a Vietnamese, um, Vietnamese uh, American, um, but he considers himself uh, a Frenchman, uh, a Southerner, and uh, a Vietnamese uh, citizen. He considers himself all of those things. He wrote this piece, Teach Your Children Well, where he said, look, I mean, one of our jobs is to be unreconstructed in teaching history. In teaching, in teaching our family, we have to be unreconstructed. You cannot just buy into the narrative. You can't just buy into the, to what the North is selling, to the goods they're selling, because those goods that they're selling are often expired or they're rehashed. I mean, this whole thing in the historical profession now about the slave power, uh, this is just rehashing the 1850s. It's actually, I mean, well, this is quite new. We're looking at this in a new way. No, they're not. Just go back and read William Seward. <laughs> it's the same thing. So we have a problem in America. It's a disconnect because of our history. And if you look at where students do the, do the poorest, we put a lot of energy and attention into the STEM areas, math and science. Well, because math and science are seen as ways we need more math and scientists out there because we need more people out there doing these things. Um, and, of course, when you look at that and you put a lot of energy and attention to that, and that is, by the way, modernity, that's science, that's, that's the Yankee uh, influence in education. One of the things you're going to see suffer because of that is social studies and history. Students tend to do the worst in those subjects. And they tend to do the worst in those subjects. I think there's several reasons. One is because a lot, oftentimes you have coach as your, uh, as your history teacher. And so coach doesn't really care about teaching a whole lot. Coach cares about the football game or the baseball game or the basketball game or the tennis match or the volleyball, whatever it is, whatever sport they're coaching. That's what they really worry about. And when you have that, you get a situation where your children are not taught well. So you have to do it on your own. And that's what uh, Vin is actually suggesting. Teach your children well in an un politically correct way. So we've had some really interesting material getting into this idea of what is identity? How do we wrestle with that? How do we determine that? Uh, not just that, 
How do we use identity uh, to uh, and and not and, and not just identity, but tradition? How do we sell tradition to a reluctant population? Well, I think there's a lots lots of different ways to do it. One thing Southerners need to do is just be proud of who they are. And I always think that you have to uh, fall in line with what the North is doing, whether it's fashion or cultural norms or whatever else. You do your thing. You do your Southern thing, and then people will follow. One of the things that's interesting about culture is if you're strong in your, in your, in your, in your resolve to do something in a culture, people are going to follow you. It's going to happen because there's lots of people out there that think like you. They're just afraid to do it or say it. So if you do these things, people will follow. It's very important to understand that. And then, of course, we had uh, the last piece of this week is Strom's advice. You know, Strom Thurmond lived to be over 100 years old. And uh, he would lift weights every day and eat right and these kind of things. And so his advice was to do these things for, for better health uh, because, you know, they, they need us around. And, and uh, it's thought that South Carolina needed Strom Thurmond around. So sometimes we have pieces that don't necessarily fit with the uh, with the general theme, in this case for a couple of weeks, but it's also important for Southerners to understand you'll know, be healthy. One thing that Strom said is you know, eat vegetables without all the stuff in them. This is where having small farms, your own farm, your own produce, this would be great because you don't have to go to the store and buy these things. You just go pick it out of your garden and go put it in your plate. Wash it off, put it in your plate. So the Southern tradition, the challenge of the Southern tradition is trying to be more Southern in an age where Southern is seen as stupid, hayseed, hillbilly, but attempting to be more Southern, to be more cognizant and conscious of who you are and to preserve those traditions that are so important to the South and to the continuity of America. Living life without a tradition is like sailing in the ocean and trying to anchor without an anchor. You don't have it. You have to have tradition to make things work in society. And uh, I think that uh, that's highly possible. But you have to be consciously thinking about it at all times. That is the challenge of the Southern tradition. Until next time, good day. Good day.